The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, which is produced at the Australian National University's Crawford School of Public Policy and co-hosted by me, Sharon Bessel. I'm a Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School and Director of the Children's Policy Centre. And beside you, Sharon, Anna Greta Hunter, cardiologist, physician and the Human Futures Fellow with the ANU College of Health and Medicine. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. Anna Greta, welcome back. It is so great to have you next to me here at the mic again after the break last week. What have you been up to? Oh, Sharon, it's so wonderful to be back. It always feels very weird the weeks when we can't record together. And so I really missed joining you last week. And um, I have to say, I caught up on your conversation with Siobhan McDonald, which was extraordinary. And I highly recommend listeners catch up on her perspectives on the IPCC and the climate negotiations globally. She she is such a wise voice in this space. It was it was a fabulous conversation. Um, I've been travelling a little bit. I've been in Wagga in regional New South Wales. I've been spending some time in the community there talking about climate change and a little bit about community politics. Um, And I'm actually joining a team in Wagga in the next week or two talking about The Voice and really trying to to make sure that some of the information around the referendum is uh, clear to people who are asking some great questions in that community. So I'm I'm really looking forward to spending a bit of time there again, but hopefully I won't need to miss another episode anytime soon. How have you been, Sharon? That's such important work that, that you're doing, Anna Greta. I've been in regional Victoria too, as it happens. I, I've been in Shepparton talking to some really inspirational young people about how we can do better in terms of, of policy, services, systems um, to support young people. So that was a, a wonderful trip and some really great conversations that I had. Um, and as you said, Anna Greta, it was a terrific conversation with Siobhan McDonnell last week, but we did miss you terribly and it's great to have you back. As our listeners know, this year we've had a number of episodes on the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. And to our listeners, if you haven't heard those remarkable conversations with Catherine Little, Rachel Perkins, Dale Aegis, Helen Haynes and Kate Orty, please do have a listen. And today we're going to continue those conversations by discussing the Indigenous Voice to Parliament in the context of constitutional reform and delving deeper into that process of constitutional reform what and what that change will mean for us as a nation. Over the coming months, we're going to be weaving into our conversations here on Policy Forum Pod a theme of reimagining. We'll be reflecting on how we can reimagine social welfare and social security, how we can reimagine healthcare, education and, and more and how reimagining can lead us to a place of creativity and greater imagination that enables us to solve some of the very serious challenges that we're facing as communities, as a nation, and as a planet. And today, part of our conversation is around how the Uluru Statement from the Heart and an Indigenous voice to Parliament can help us to reimagine our constitution and our sense of who we are as a nation. And we have a very special guest to talk through some of these issues with us. Anna Greta, would you like to do the introductions? 
And I think you're on mute, Anna Greta. <laughs> There's an ambulance outside. What an absolute delight to welcome Professor Kim Rubinstein to Policy Forum Pod today. Listeners no doubt will have heard of Kim and they may have heard her speak previously. Professor Rubinstein is an Australian legal scholar and lawyer. She ran for the Australian Senate in the most federal election, most recent federal election here in Canberra. And she's a professor of law at the University of Canberra, where in 2020 she became the inaugural co-director academic of the 5050 by 2030 Foundation. She was previously a professor of law here at the Australian National University. Together with James Blackwell, Professor Rubinstein's currently producing a series of podcasts that I'm very much looking forward to, looking on the Constitution and its future. So please watch out for that. Kim, it's an absolute delight to have you on Policy Forum. Thank you so much. It's great to be with both of you. Kim, we wanted to talk specifically about the voice and its significance and the referendum that we will have here in Australia later this year. But before we can talk about that, can we talk a little bit about constitutional reform? What does constitutional change mean and what is needed to change the the Australian Constitution? Thanks so much for um, asking and for addressing one of these sessions on this question because I really believe that constitutional form reform and constitutional engagement is fundamental to all people living in Australia because it's a real representation of active citizenship. One of the really um, profound aspects of the drafting of the constitution, and uh, hopefully speak a little bit more about that process shortly, is that the um, drafters determined that if there was to be any change, it had to involve all the citizenry. And so there is a specific section in the Constitution, Section 128. It's currently the last section, um, but hopefully it will be preceding what will be a new section, Section 129, which is proposed um, for this um, constitutional change. But Section 128 specifies that in order to change the Constitution, there has to be a, a bill before Parliament, which is what has just recently been passed through the House and the Senate, proposing a change to the Constitution. And then once that bill is passed, there is um, the requirement that no less than two months after that uh, passage of the bill and no more than six months after the the wording of the proposed change be put to all people on the electoral roll. So um, in that sense, we are now in that period. Um, we're still within the two months, so it can't happen in, um, in the next little while, but certainly before middle, the middle of December this year, that particular change will be put forward. And the requirement also states that not only is it put forward, but the voting has its own extra hurdles. It's not only that a majority of people vote in favour of it, but because of the federal nature of our system, and this is something we might come back to as well, there is also a requirement that a majority of states also vote yes. And so that is what um, is ahead of us this year. And it's quite important, I think, on a number of levels, but I guess on a practical level, um, the last constitutional change, uh, proposed constitutional change rather, was in 1999. So we're talking about um, 24 years or so ago, which is a significant period of time. So most people haven't actually been active citizens in this sense um, for a very long time, and I see this as a very important, um, I guess, step in Australian active citizenship. 
And Kim, you know, thank you so, so much for setting that out clearly, because I think um, before we can have the conversations about what it is we're trying to do, it's really helpful to understand what the process is. And can I just clarify with you, when um, there's a requirement for the majority of states to vote um, in favour yes. of, of constitutional change. Am I correct in saying that doesn't include the territories? So the ACT and the Northern Territory are excluded from, from that correct, part of Sharon. the requirement? And in fact, again, this is a, sort of a, a reference to the the nature of the historical, um, you know, period in which the constitution was formed because the Australian Capital Territory and the Northern Territory were not functioning in a, in a, a sort of self-regulated sense. And, in fact, um, at the very beginning there was um, no reference to the ACT or the Northern Territory at all in Section 128. But when we look at Section 128, there was actually an amendment to that section um, in 1977 to actually include them in the actual um, majority overall so in the, in the second paragraph, if anyone wants to go and have a look at it, you will see that the um, that bill that I just referred to has to um, be agreed to um, by the electors in each state and territory. So it actually added in the territories in that aspect, but it didn't add in the territories in terms of the majority in a federal sense. Um, and it's sort of interesting from a democratic point of view, and this is probably a, a separate podcast for us all to talk about in terms of the the nature of democracy versus the nature of federalism. And one of the themes that um, you, you could say that comes from our um, constitutional structure is that federalism sometimes trumps democracy. Um, and in this sense, those of us who live in the ACT or in the Northern Territory, our democratic representation is lesser by virtue of the federal system. Kim, I must say, I love the way you can reference all parts of our constitution with no notice whatsoever. And you are one of the few people I know that actually carries a copy of the constitution with you. Yes, unfortunately, there no one can see this, but the, th the four of us who can see one another as we're doing this, I have my constitution with me and it is always with me. So um, it is, and this is actually a, a newer version, the one that I actually studied as an undergraduate st uh, student with that some of some people may have seen on Q&A when I first appeared is so overworn that I, I have to sort of preserve it for archival purposes, I think. So this is uh, a, a newer version, but it is also much uh, tattier from a lot of uh, use, that's for sure. <laughs> Uh, to our listeners, I can vouch that Kim does actually have a copy of the Constitution in her hand and it looks very battered. It looks well used. <laughs> um, Kim, you were talking then a little bit about the history of our Constitution and it's yes. not possible to understand the importance of an Indigenous voice to Parliament without understanding our history and the history of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders' place within the Australian Constitution. Could you talk us through how First Nations peoples in Australia have been considered or ignored within our constitutions and, and what have been some of the debates around that? Yes, I think this is such an important um, frame within which to think about the voice and one that I've certainly been very keen to share as widely as possible, particularly when people ask the question as to why should Indigenous Australians be treated any differently in relation to their 
voice or representation to Parliament. And it's so um, striking to me um, when I look at the Constitution and in teaching the Constitution to to actually reflect and remember at the, the time of the drafting of this Constitution and, in fact, more than just the time, but one of the motivations for drafting um, a Commonwealth Constitution, because, remember, each of the colonies were operating as self um, governing entities with reference back to the United Kingdom, of course. But um, they were each making their own laws for their own territories, but they had common goals and common um, aspirations. So some of those were economic, which were um, one of the factors leading to creating a single federal body to be able to make laws for the whole area. But one of the other really significant factors was the nature of um discrimination at the time and the norm of discrimination and by that I mean not only in relation to Indigenous Australians which we'll come back to but to sort of introduce it a bit more in terms of um, a very focused white Australia policy that had been um, developed in the 1850s and onwards really from the time of colonisation really whereby those who were who had settled had determined that they did not want non-white immigrants or they wanted to to limit the number of non-white immigrants. And, in fact, so much so, so that in the drafting of the different powers that would be federal powers as opposed to the states continuing to have powers, so the areas that the federal government would be able to make laws about, which is, in essence, what this constitution was about, setting up a federal body that would be able to make laws for the whole country, there was a specific decision not to make laws about citizenship. And this is really interesting, again, for the um, coming back to the Indigenous question, but I think it needs the sort of broader perspective. In determining not to have a head of power over something that you would think is as essentially national, as in who would be citizens, there were there was a strong discussion and ultimately one that was successful to say, no, we shouldn't put citizenship as a head of power because it will lead us to innumerable difficulties. In fact, those are the words of Sir Isaac Isaacs, one of the drafters. And those difficulties related to the fact that Australians residing at that time in Australia were British subjects. Now, of course, anyone born in territory according to colonial law was a British subject, which included Indigenous Australians. So right from the start, Indigenous Australians were formally British subjects. Indeed, anyone born in Australia was deemed by the British to be a British subject. But, of course, there were British subjects also from India or Hong Kong who they didn't want to allow free entry into Australia. And so by having a head of power of a citizenship, it would have required them to be more specific and explicit about that discrimination so that was one of the reasons that we don't and didn't at that time have a reference to Australian citizenship in the Australian Constitution. And, in fact, that term only came into being in 1949 with the introduction of that term, largely motivated by the Canadian uh, Parliament for all of the um, British colonies to have both British subject status and a citizenship status. But intermingled with that discussion was also the treatment of Indigenous Australians, non-white British subjects, and a desire in the same way not to treat um, um, non-Australian British subjects who might want to come in you know, on a different level. So too was that realisation and, and continuing commitment to the states being able to continue to discriminate 
against Indigenous Australians. And in fact, the Constitution still has a specific section which enables the states to continue to discriminate on the basis um, of race in the Constitution in terms of Section 25. It says, if by the law of any state all persons of any race are disqualified from voting at elections for the more numerous houses of the Parliament of the state, then in reckoning the number of the people of the state of the Commonwealth, persons of that race resident in that state shall not be counted. So here was the federal parliament saying we're not only not going to make a, uh, uh, give ourselves the power over citizenship, but we're going to leave that power in the states to continue to discriminate on the basis of race in terms of voting. And underlying the formation of the constitution was really this creation of an institution that enabled and, as I said earlier, was you know very much influenced or motivated by his desire to have a common discrimination system. Um, and that is really a profound aspect of our constitution, which I've argued elsewhere has continuing policy um, rippling effects. And in many ways, it's a stain underpinning our constitution, which the voice is such an ingenious way of moving beyond and rectifying and enabling us to recalibrate the constitution to not only recognise first uh, Indigenous Australians as having been here first before this colonial document was established, but to recognise also that in order for Indigenous Australians to have a fuller citizenship, they need to have the capacity to make representations on matters affecting them. And I'll just quickly, because this is a bit too much of a monologue, I'm sorry, but just quickly remind listeners really that even though Indigenous Australians were formerly British subjects and then formally became Australian citizens, they had not been treated equally. That is, the status did not give you the rights. Now, we see this in terms of gender as well. Women were British subjects and they didn't have the vote at the time of the federal creation of the federal uh, constitution. There were there was South Australian, Western Australian women who had a vote in their own colonies or then in their own states, but federally... At the time of federation, women did not have the right to vote and neither did Indigenous Australians have the right to vote under the Electoral Act until 1962. So really our constitution set up a system to treat Indigenous Australians and non-white Australians differently and this is a really important step of rectifying that starting point. Kim, this historical context that you give on the creation and then the evolution of our constitution is such rich content when we're looking at the referendum question. I'd like to bring us to the future that you've already begun to touch on, the Uluru Statement. The, okay. This statement has been described as a gift and I think your words are that this is a document for all Australians a document that's in the spirit of reconciliation and one that affirms the commitment to equality that underpins or perhaps should underpin Australian citizenship in the 21st century and into the future. We have a theme of reimagining running through many of our discussions on the pod this year, so I wonder if you could talk us through how we can reimagine citizenship for the 21st century and how the Uluru Statement might help us do that. Thanks, Anna Greta, because I, I really am, I, I have felt so inspired and I guess it's coming down to process um, that is so important for people to be aware of. 
Um, the Uluru Statement was the culmination of one of the most um, engaged forms of citizenship that we've seen historically in Australia, in that Indigenous leaders, in particular, um, we have Auntie Pat Anderson, Professor Megan Davis, Noel Pearson, leading a series of regional dialogues whereby they went around the country and sat down with Indigenous Australians with this constitution, with the document, and said, what do we want? And they were, uh, um, they were given that responsibility by um, the government of the time to find out what Indigenous Australians wanted from the constitution, not from, from those in Parliament telling them what um, that would be changed, but saying, help us. In, in many ways, this is the first step, seeking their advice on what they wanted in relation to um, renewing and re-engaging with the Australian Constitution. And, um, you know, it, it really is such a lesson to all Australians and my hope is that this will be the first of uh, a series of Australians engaging with the Constitution as a document and saying what else needs changing. This is the first and most important, I think, in what should be a series of um, the foundational document which regulates all other laws better reflecting the current composition of the Australian community because at the moment it is wedded in the Australia of the 1890s um, of um, a, a period in which only those with property got the right to vote or who were men who had the right to vote and of a different era in relation to Australia's place in the world and a different era in terms of the composition of the community. From that, from that time forward, it took a while before the White Australia policy was changed, but when it did change, we saw a rapid engagement with encouraging migration from all around the world, and we're at a point now where over half of Australia's population have a parent or themselves were born outside of Australia. It's a vastly different country, but the constitution is framed from a different period. So in our reimagining, in many ways, it's recalibrating and a reimagined constitution to better reflect the reality on the ground of what the Australian community now looks like. And the voice is such an important first step in that process. Kim, this is such an incredibly important conversation about how we think about our present and our future in the context of our past and how we can think differently and reimagine. We're going to take a very short break now, but listeners, don't go away. We'll be back with Professor Kim Rubenstein in just a minute. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. 
Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We are here today with Professor Kim Rubenstein. We're talking about the Australian Constitution, its past, its present and its potential future. And we've had an extraordinary conversation so far going back over the origin of that document. Kim, together with James Blackwell from here at the Australian National University, you've been working tirelessly over the recent months explaining to people across the country what the voice means and why it matters. I wonder what sort of responses you're getting when you have these conversations. Look, they've been really fascinating and and quite um, exciting really because it's that um, opportunity to remind people about how fundamental the Constitution is to their lives and how important this um, process is. Look, I think we're getting a range of different questions and um, certainly great interest in what we're sharing with people. But a lot of um, the questions often come down to um, the Indigenous communities' engagement with this, as I said earlier, with um, this process and the discussion about the fact that um, not every single Indigenous Australian necessarily is in support of um, the Uluru Statement from the Heart or or perhaps not in support of a referendum. And perhaps this is a, a point to, of course, refresh everyone's memories that the Uluru Statement from the Heart has three parts to it. It's voice, treaty and truth. So it's about this first step, um, which is the creation of a body called the voice that will be able to make representations to Parliament and the executive on matters to do with Indigenous Australians. But then the second part of it is treaty in relation to agreement making between different Indigenous nations around the country with governments, something that has um, started in some of the states and we should come back to the federal aspect of this as well too before we finish. And then lastly, um, truth-telling in terms of um, a rec- the importance from, a, uh, from the perspective of reconciliation for all Australians to acknowledge um, the, the realities of the historical treatment of Indigenous Australians and for us as a nation to better come to terms with the the um, the pain and the um, experiences um, that so many uh, Indigenous Australians have experienced. So in um, in that discussion, uh, James very helpfully explains that um, there was a great effort and no one uh, to have a range of people at, at those different regional community meetings um, and a very vigorous discussion about order in terms of voice, treaty and truth. And what persuaded over 80% of those who were there who then went to the final convention at, at Uluru where this statement was formulated was the importance of voice coming first because the experience of treaty making 
in countries where it didn't happen at the beginning. So, for instance, in New Zealand, uh, treaty making was very soon after the colonial arrival um, and the colonial experiment, if we can put it that way, so that the parties were more on equal footing in the process of coming to agreement making. But in places um, like uh, Canada and, in fact, even here in Australia and Victoria where there has been the beginnings of treaty making, um, the recognition that the parties are not on an equal footing and so it's much more difficult for Indigenous Australians to engage in treaty when they don't have the resources and they don't have the capacity to best represent the diverse needs of the different uh, nations who will then engage in treaty. And so the voice was seen as important to assist in that next step of treaty making. And some of the people who are resisting um, this referendum have a different view on that and um, were part of that minority who were heard and listened to but who weren't ne um, necessarily agreed to at those conventions. Now, of course, they're absolutely entitled to continue to express that, but I think it is also important to recognise that um, there is a clear majority of Indigenous Australians and people are interested to hear that. And I think, you know, for any... Um, person thinking through, we never expect a homogenous approach to anything in any community. So why should we, of course, expect that in relation to Indigenous Australians? So that's one aspect that um, James has done a lot, I think, a very helpful explanation um, around. Um, the other is I often get that question which we, we touched on about this notion of, of privileging Indigenous Australians in a way that we're creating a race-based distinction and an unequal citizenship and so that historical material that I shared with you earlier is very important to share with people um, that has been quite um, significant I think in relation to it but the other reason this is something I think we should all be conscious of particularly um, in one of the uh, groups that we spoke at where there were um, a more significant number of Indigenous um, people in the group we were speaking to was the harm that is caused in in a process like this and how important it is for for all of us uh, in, in this process. And I guess this is a really interesting broader question about active citizenship when you engage with difficult, um, well, what perhaps shouldn't be so difficult in my personal view, but what becomes quite adversarial or partisan discussion, um, the harm that can be um, caused in relation to the people that you're talking about we saw that, of course, with the plebiscite in relation to LGBTQI um, marriage rights and um, that's another aspect that's been coming up a little in relation to people's discussions, um, how we best protect Indigenous Australians when we're discussing this referendum. Kim, I think those issues that you raise are, are so incredibly important. And you know, when I just look at some of the comments that um, are on social media, you know, so many of them are incredibly supportive or genuinely seeking more understanding and more information. Mm -hmm. But there's also a, a disturbing number of deeply racist comments. And mm -hmm. I think it is so important that we have these conversations um, in a way that explains the context but also makes very clear that that kind of racist commentary is simply not acceptable in a modern mm. Australia. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's another, you know, in terms of reimagining um, 
issues i'd love to come back at another point and talk to with you about the nature of um our parliamentary partisanship um that has you know i think grown over the years and it it was possible and there were many advocates out there trying to get both um conservatives and more progressives together on this before taking it to a referendum and um, I think it is disappointing for all of us as citizens in a way that um, that wasn't achieved here. I don't think it, it results in not going forward by any means, but I think there could have been, and we're already beyond that, there could have been a more bipartisan approach to this constitutional change, which would have allowed you know some engagement with some of the constitutional questions without it being so divisive. And um, I think that's a broader question that needs to be addressed about the nature of political discussion in this country and obviously not only here but internationally as well and how how we um, better equip ourselves and deal with it. I mean, just very briefly from last weekend with the launch of the S23 campaign, I mean, I've, I've been on social media now for a very long time and and as Anna Greta said at the very beginning, ran for the Senate and only had very, very minimal um, antisocial behaviour in the sense of a couple of anti-Semitic incidents on core flutes, but very little on social media that I was aware of, not that I'd looked that closely how the people were looking, but we, we really didn't have that experience. But last Sunday when I just put up an image of holding up one of the banners and saying, great start at Hay Park, I've had the most trolling I've ever had in my my life and, and with one of them saying Jew or you know which is sort of you know irrelevant to, to the discussion but just this sort of um and you know just the numbers of people that I've just you know had to mute just you know who were obviously on the lookout for all of the you know the social media about that event and it's just it is a broader question about how we um, you know, manage that as a society. There are always going to be, I guess, fringe um, views in a community, but I think this is where leadership is so fundamental from all sides of politics against that behaviour. Um, and I don't think we've seen that leadership recently, which is a, uh, profoundly disappointing. Oh, Kim, that's it's depressing to hear. Mm. It's it's confronting to read those comments, and um, and it's even more confronting to think about what some of our indigenous leaders are experiencing exactly. at this time. Yeah. Kim, we've we've talked about the importance of the decision that the Australian people will make later this year on constitutional change to recognise indigenous Australians and to enshrine an indigenous voice to Parliament in our constitution. Um, but you've also written about the other changes that are needed to make our constitution fit for 21st century democracy and to reimagine citizenship in Australia. One of the changes that you've written about is the move to an Australian head of state. I wonder if you could talk us through why you see that change as so incredibly important, um, I must say, as I do, um, when we think <laughs> about our contemporary democracy. Yes, I think this really comes back to that fundamental change in the sort of the makeup of Australian society and also in the way we see ourselves as an independent nation. So as I explained at the very beginning, when we created the Commonwealth of Australia, um, those people doing that were British subjects and saw themselves so profoundly as British subjects. And in fact, another part of the resistance to 
creating a head of citizenship, the power of a citizenship, was that there was this concern that that could in any way undermine this strong crimson thread of connection to the British Empire and being part of the Commonwealth. And, in fact, um, you, that, um, that was um, something that was so profoundly felt by those people setting up those colonial institutions in a federal sense. So we we have seen a, a change in that status by virtue of creation of Australian citizenship as a legal status that sat side by side British subject status for a long time, so much so that there are still people on our electoral roll who are British subjects who are not Australian citizens because if they were British subjects at the um, at the time when um, Australian citizenship was introduced. They were entitled to stay on the electoral roll and it was only after 1987 when the term British subject was removed as a status and I should say it's after the British removed it themselves. They'd become British citizens and got rid of British subject status before Australia did. But those British subjects at that time who were already on the electoral roll stay on, on the electoral roll. So they will eventually die out, and I'm not encouraging that to happen sooner rather than later, but ultimately it's a finite category of people. But that reflects, you know, that there was this strong British identity, but it, cha- it was changing. And then in 1988 there was a step in a structural sense for um, a further separation of the power of the British Parliament over Australia. So with the passage of the Australia Acts in 1988, the British Parliament could no longer make laws, which they had been able to earlier, that covered um, all the dominions, including Australia. And the executive branch was seen as being independent. And so that when the Governor-General, who is the uh, Crown's representative in Australia, and reminding everyone, of course, that the head of state of Australia is now King Charles, King Charles as King of Australia, he is a multifaceted individual, is the King of England and the King of other countries who have still retained a monarchical system. But ultimately, the Governor-General, who um, is a representative of the King, acts on the advice of Australian ministers. But up until the Australia Act, it was the British Parliament that still had the capacity to advise in relation to aspects of that power. And so that was severed with the Australia Acts. Um, and so 1988 was another step in the evolution of that change. But very interestingly, the other change was with the High Court's decision in relation to dual citizenship under Section 44.1 of the Constitution. And listeners may remember that the most perhaps significant discussion of citizenship in recent years has been when people have been found to be dual citizens And the Constitution prevents anyone who is a dual citizen from nominating just to even run for Parliament, let alone to be elected uh, as a parliamentarian. And um, a woman called Heather Hill um, had been um, nominated and successful in Parliament and she was a British citizen and British subject as well. And the High Court found that she satisfied being a person who was a citizen of a foreign power. Okay, so that again, made that very clear that we are Australians, we're not British, we're an Australian citizenship, and they are distinct nationalities, yet we still have a British person who is the head of state. And some people would say that, well, the Governor-General is an Australian and has been since 1933 and now acts on the advice of the Australian 
um, elected representatives, being the prime minister and the ministers. But I think um, the reality also is that we're still caught within a framework where that power continues in less direct ways. And a more recent example can be seen with the Australian Archives' resistance to Jenny Hocking's original application for some material from the archives that involved um, letters from the between the then Governor General Sir John Kerr and the and the Crown, the Queen of the time, and that was resisted on the basis of the desire expressed through the archives of of the Crown. So that that um, and that ultimately was resisted um, successfully by Jenny Hocking in several layers of court proceedings, ultimately with the High Court finding that she did have the right of access to it. But I think that's just one um, aspect reflecting that we we still structurally are caught in the 1890s, even though we have moved on as a nation. And so a move to a, repub- a republic would better reflect the more um, evolved structural realities of the um, Australian uh, governance and government system but also having an Australian as the head of state, it would be a coming of age in terms of our um, growth as a nation. And um, as we know, the last referendum was held in 1999 and um, unsuccess- was unsuccessful. But I think the strong feeling um, at that time was about the nature of the method in which we um, choose that head of state rather than a commitment to actually having an Australian as a head of state. And that will be another journey that we'll uh, need to engage with as active citizens if and when that comes up. And I, I shouldn't say if it comes up because the current government has a has a minister responsible for the Republic. So it's certainly on the agenda of this particular government. And, um, and we know of many people um, who are continuing to support that, including the Australian Republican movement that's come up with a new model, which I think is a very um, wise one um, for appointing and electing a head of state, which is to involve both the Commonwealth Parliament and the state parliaments in nominating individuals who could be um, then voted by the Australian people. So you'd have both parliamentary involvement on one level, but the people's involvement on the other. And the other issue, which is another podcast in itself, is just the clarity around the powers of that person who is appointed or uh, and elected in terms of the limitations on those powers, which comes back to the whole 1975 dismissal issue again. Another podcast in and of itself. Kim, we definitely, we're going to have to get you back and I, th- I can, <laughs> actually can't wait to hear the, the mini-series of podcasts that you're producing out of the University of Canberra because right. uh, this has certainly piqued my interest in the constitutional history and understanding a bit more about that document, which of course underpins so much of what happens in terms of policy and politics here in Australia. But we are going to have to wrap up today's conversation um, and I really do look forward to picking up on many of these points with you again in the future. Kim, to finish, we have been asking our guests what their hopes are for the morning after the referendum, what you would like to see and feel perhaps on that morning. What what would you like to see on the Sunday morning wandering the streets of Canberra just after we have all voted? Well, um, obviously, um, because I see this as an important step in the recalibration and growth of us as a nation, a yes vote, and so um, joy from the outcomes of such a, such a vote, but also really a sense of um, excitement about the possibilities ahead 
a reminder that we can change the constitution. Section 128 was there not to stop us from changing, but to enable us to change the constitution, but in a way that involves us. And so I'm hoping that people will feel so enthused by the fact that we've been able to change the constitution that they'll not only think about that question about a republic, but also be biting at their um, at the heels to move forward on section forty four one, which is the dual citizenship provision. Because we now live in such a rich multicultural society, as I said earlier, that we need better representation of that reality of our community, and so that people, whilst they may be exhausted and will need a holiday from those who have been involved, will also be bracing themselves to go into the next rounds of thinking about what else needs changing to make us a stronger, more resilient, self-assured and cohesive society that better reflects each and every person who has the benefit of living in this country. Kim, that is a wonderful and a powerful note for us to finish on. I hope that we do all feel that sense of joy and hope for the future on the day after the referendum. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your deep knowledge of the Constitution and just how important this decision is that we're facing. Kim Rubenstein, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you both. I really enjoyed speaking about all of this with both of you. Sharon, that really was an extraordinary discussion. Uh, I know with the multiple conversations we've had around the import, this important referendum, uh, the referendum to the, for the voice to parliament, that the constitution has come up in those conversations already many times. And I feel like today's conversation with Kim really gave me a remarkable insight into just how important understanding the historical context of that document that was created, of course, at the end of the 19th century and the way in which its transformation so that it's fit for purpose in the 21st century will improve the lives and the way that our politics work here in Australia. So just an extraordinary discussion from Kim today and one that I'm sure I'll go back to. What about your thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree, Anna Greta. And um, as I said during that conversation, Kim is one of the, the very few people I know that actually carries a copy of the Constitution around, which I think is both wonderful and slightly funny. Um, but it does mean she has that depth of knowledge to be able to explain to us the significance of where we have come from with our Constitution and where we can take it. I think we know from history and the history of referenda in in Australia that there is a real hesitancy to change our constitution. And in some ways, that's a good thing. You know, we need to be cautious about changing the foundational document of the nation. However, we now find ourselves at a point in history where we desperately need that change. Um, And we have the opportunity before us to begin to correct some of the wrongs of the past and to recognise that our history spans far, far longer than a couple of centuries. So this is is indeed an incredibly important moment. Is The other couple of comments that I would make, Anna Greta, is I find it so deeply saddening when I hear comments like those that Kim made about some of the racism that we're hearing around these debates. I genuinely believe that as a country we are better than that, and I hope that our genuine soul and spirit as a nation comes through as we are having these discussions around the the Indigenous voice to Parliament and that we can collectively do what is right um, for the country as a whole. 
And the final comment I would make is just it was so fascinating hearing Kim talk about the Republic. And I think we need to come back to this at some point as we do think about our constitutional future. And, you know, Anna Greta, I think about the the children that I work with and we use a, a framework called the MORE framework, MOR, Material Basics, Opportunity and Relationships. And it's a shocking thing that in this country today, none of those children that I work with have the opportunity to aspire to be the head of state. And we need to change that. What a great thought to finish today's conversation on, Sharon, and one I'm really looking forward to coming back to in the future. Listeners, this podcast is produced by policyforum.net and we'll leave a link to the publications and sources that we've discussed today in the show notes, particularly and including the Australian Constitution. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, you can leave us a review. It's the best way for other people to find out about our pod. We love hearing from you, our sorry. <clears throat> we love hearing from you, our audience. So reach out to us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum, that's at APPS Policy Forum, or flick us an email at podcast at policyforum.net. That's all we have time for for this week. So from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Greta Hunter, see you next week. 